gamification, overrated or underrated? Very overrated. Yeah, that's an easy one. And uh, I'll why it's because people who, not gamification experts, but people who I might encounter in a client situation who understand a little bit about gamification very rarely understand it well enough to understand why it works when it's done well. Hi, everyone. This is the Behavioral Design Podcast from Habit Weekly and the Center for Advanced Hindsight. My name is Samuel Seltzer. And I'm Aline Holsworth. Well, it's uh, funny to have someone after my name now. Uh, welcome, Aline, to this podcast journey. Yeah, it's getting crowded in here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm welcoming this. It's, uh, I wouldn't say it's been lonely per se. It's been obviously fun so far, but I feel like having you on board is going to make it definitely more fun. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So how, how, how are you feeling about uh, being a podcast host? I'm feeling very excited. This is something that I've wanted to do for a long time, but honestly just couldn't manage on my own. So <laughs> I'm really relying on you huh? you to carry me through uh, on this journey. You're like, you're like my tour guide and I'm, uh, I'm just, you know, looking at the map, trying to figure out where I'm going, <laughs> but I'm here for the ride. Awesome. Obviously we've had an episode each kind of taking turns interviewing each other. And while we could take turns and do that ad <laughs> infinitum, we <laughs> probably shouldn't. Nobody and wants so, that. <laughs> no. And so instead, this is the first real episode where we're interviewing someone else. Yeah. And it's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, who's Amy Buecher, who's uh, not only the VP of Behavior Change Design at MadPow, but one of my all-time favorite people. Amy's just an incredible human being. And she's also the author of Engaged, Designing for Behavior Change. If you haven't read this book yet, I highly recommend it. Go out and get yourself a copy. And it really explores how we can incorporate behavior change design into our products and our services. And Amy does a fantastic job of really laying this all out, making it easily accessible for practitioners, for designers to, to just implement the science right away. Yeah, and it was the book of the month in Hamburg Weekly for good reasons as well. And I really loved you seeing this book out there because there's so few books on this thing of putting behavioral science to practice. So really fun episode. We cover a lot of ground. We talk about user research and Amy gives some great tips on how to run a behavioral diagnosis. We try to get quite specific and go over quite a few concrete examples for how to design for behavior change in practice, which this podcast is all about. And yeah, there's so many things we cover. We cover feedback loops, personalizations, cats, like what, <laughs> what more? Uh, chai lattes, oh no, um, pumpkin spice lattes. Pumpkin spice lattes, yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes. It was a really interesting conversation and we hope you find it as enlightening as we did. Let's get the show started. Heavens to Murgatroyd. <laughs> Welcome, Amy, to the Behavioral Design Podcast. We're super excited to have you here. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Awesome. Well, obviously, we're going to get to engage because that's the book of the month and everything. But I really wanted to start with you. So you're obviously... Beyond is the author, also a VP of Behavior Change Design at MadPow. Mm -hmm. And what I found very interesting is that last time I checked, there's no career guide to becoming a VP of Behavior Change Design. So I'm just curious how you got started in applied behavioral science. 
and and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, when I when I look back at my story, I feel like I had several uh, very lucky moments in my career where I took the next step towards where I am today without realizing what it would all add up to. The first was that I studied psychology in the first place and really loved it, really saw the potential of it to just change the way people be at, react and think and feel. I thought that was really cool and interesting. Didn't really know what to do with it as a career. And I was lucky that I had a mentor who encouraged me to go to graduate school and said, you know, that's where you'll figure out how to use this. And I don't think I would have come up with that on my own. And I certainly wouldn't have ended up at the University of Michigan, which was a program she really encouraged for me. And then once there, I was being trained for the academic track, which is pretty typical for psychology PhD, and at some point realized that, no, this isn't quite the way I want to use this stuff. And again, just really became lucky in that I took a job with an agency where I got to do a lot of different research in healthcare. That particular job wasn't a fit for a number of reasons, but the connection with healthcare was, it, it opened my eyes to what behavior science can do applied in that area. There's so many things where people are looking to change behaviors in a sustained way, and there hasn't been a lot of industry focus on bringing behavior science into doing that, or at least there hadn't at the time. There's much more now. So then from there, I found a job with a startup where I was embedded in a design team. So I really got to get involved with UX, and that's where I started to learn um, a lot of the UX skills that are part of my job today. Um, Johnson & Johnson acquired that company. Again, like a huge lucky stroke that I could never have predicted. But because of that, I was exposed to just unbelievable opportunities. You know, I, I've worked globally on projects with really, you know, complex problem areas and pulling together people from different disciplines and different types of teams. Uh, so I, I think part of, if, I, if I'm looking back now and I'm, I'm telling the story and I want to give advice to my younger self, I think the thing I did right was I took leaps of faith at several points. I, I saw something that was interesting to me and I tried to understand what about it was really compelling to me and make decisions that honored that thing that mattered to me as opposed to the thing that maybe made the most sense from the outside. So that's, that's I guess, the way I had control over my lucky breaks is that I pursued my heart instead of what my brain said was the story that made more sense. So you mentioned the the thing that you did right. If you look back and think about all the things that you did, is there anything that you would have done differently? Or you think, well, maybe there was this other opportunity that I feel I may have missed. You know, we get to, you know, from point A to point Z in so many different ways. And of course, there are all sorts of other paths we could have taken, even to get, you know, from the same A to Z. Is there anything that, it, especially in terms of advising others that you might have, uh, you know, tried differently um, that's a, I've thought a lot about this and I, I think it's a hard question because you don't know what you don't know. It's, it's difficult to engage with the counterfactual. One thing that I wish I hadn't done as much was just wallow in this despair of, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not doing it right. I, I wasted a lot of emotional energy on thinking that I wasn't doing the right thing or I wasn't making the same type of career choices that my cohort was making from grad school. I had the opportunity this last summer to go to a conference and reunite with a lot of the folks that I went to grad school with. And it was kind of the first time in almost 20 years where I was like, oh, my choices were equally valid and good. And I also ended up in a good place. <laughs> that really, it, it, there was no benefit to me spending all those cycles feeling bad about my choices. And I wish that I could do that differently, but I also don't know how how to do that differently. And then the other choice that I look back on, and I, I do have a question mark, is I spent a year at CVS Health when I left Johnson & Johnson before I went to MadPow. 
And I chose to do that. I was working in the specialty pharmacy and digital innovation. And those are two areas that I have a lot of passion and interest in. And I also thought it would be a comfortable home because similar to Johnson & Johnson, it's a large organization where MadPow is a small, scrappy consultancy. So I just thought in terms of the type of company that might be a better fit for me. And I, it wasn't, it really wasn't. It was a very, um, very, very structured workplace where every, you know, whatever is in your, your role description is kind of what you do. And I was accustomed to working much more fluidly and kind of across boundaries and across roles. And I really wasn't happy there and didn't feel like I was able to be a behavioral scientist and I, you know, I, I kind of feel sometimes like maybe that was a wasted year. But then I also think I met wonderful people. I have career connections I never would have had otherwise. I think I have some additional credibility around specialty pharmacy, especially because I understand how that works operationally now, which I didn't before to this level of detail. And, you know, I also can't change it. So I think if I, if I could look back, I might vet that opportunity more carefully. I might go and be a little bit more, I did talk to people who worked for the company, but I think I would be a little bit more um, assertive, I guess, in the questions I asked and really try to dig in on the day-to-day in more detail than I did, as opposed to a top line, like, do you like it? What's the culture like? Which is really what I was trying to assess. But like I said, I, I also gained a lot of benefit out of, you know, it wasn't the right choice for me, but it was a choice that brought me some good things. Right. Yeah. No, that's very insightful. And and how do you know until you until you try it? Right. There's there's so much in hindsight. Very cool. Um, so I have a this this might come off as controversial. I don't want it to come off as controversial. <laughs> but uh, there's there's this thing that Dan Ariely likes to say that I want to sort of uh, put in front of you and get your reaction to. He uh, he likes to say that he used to think that behavioral scientists were essentially amateur designers. So we try to figure out how to design a cafeteria to help people eat better, to design forms, to get people to be more honest and so on. We're essentially choice architects that are that are designing uh, decision environments. But um, he sort of came to this realization that as he's worked with more and more designers and, and gained more experience in the field, he's come to realize that designers are really the amateur behavioral scientists, <laughs> sort of the other way around. And just the designers can learn so much from behavioral science. I think I think your book really kind of hits on this point where you're, you're trying to share the learnings of behavioral science with designers, um, both in terms of sharing the library of existing research, but also, you know, just in terms of testing and methodologies and, and so on. Um, you know, and as someone who's really embedded in design and working with lots of designers, what do you think of this uh, of this opinion? I think both halves of it are right, actually. And I, I think it's why I took to being embedded in a design team so easily. It, it felt very natural in a lot of ways. And I found that the tools that come from human-centered design that I didn't learn in grad school, but now adopted as part of my practice, really helped me be a bit better behavioral scientist. Um, you know, I just finished doing research interviews and it was really very, very much like an experienced design method of conducting interviews and what we're doing with the data aligns with those practices, but I'm bringing the mindset of a behavior scientist to it and some of the frameworks and, and, and analytical tools. And yeah, I think on the other hand, he's also correct about designers. They understand intuitively that they're trying to change behavior. And there's been a long interest in some parts of psychology for designers. You know, I'm thinking about cognitive psychology and information hierarchies and color patterns and how do you get people to notice things and take action on things. Less so, I think, on motivation and maybe even like mental models and and schemata and things like that. But I do think that that existing interest was already there and that that field is very open to the influence of behavior science and learning those skills and incorporating them. I've been really um, 
excited by just how many up and coming designers have reached out to me and been like, wow, you do a really cool thing. And I would love to do more behavior science, like help me figure out how to do that. Where are the resources? Who are the people? Um, and, you know, I always tell them to subscribe to Habit Weekly. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, there's that those are two fields that really do belong together in my mind. That's very cool. And one thing usually that comes around when talking about behavioral science is, you know, context matter. You know, we have to think about when designing for behavior change that it differs a lot based on the context. But mm -hmm. I guess what's not as often thought about in, ter in terms of the context of the designer or like the behavioral designer or behavioral scientist in terms of you sharing kind of your journey. To me, it sounds like you've yourself been in very different types of contexts doing this work, like from mm -hmm the more academic maybe to the startup, to the big, you know, <laughs> the biggest types of companies. How, how do you feel like that's affected your work? It definitely does affect, affect my work. And I, I have a very strong preference to work in an environment where I have more autonomy, uh, which for me is something like MadPow, where as a consultant and as a consultant at a fairly high level, I'm able to, um, you know, set a lot of the parameters around the projects that I work on. I'm able to make the decisions about how to frame the results and the recommendations of the work that I do. And I have some, not not full because it is a company and I don't do a ton of business development, but I also have some input into the types of projects that we even look to take on. So all of those things, I think, they help me be what I consider a better behavioral scientist, at least for my style of working, because I'm kind of able to pull from the strongest parts of my skill set and the things that I, I care the most about, the places where I feel I can have the most impact and almost craft a, a closer to ideal portfolio of work um, with tons and tons of caveats, because I'm, I'm by no means doing every single day exactly what I want to do. Like there's also the reality of I, I work for a company and for clients and I don't get to make every single choice. I've found um, with academia what I didn't like about it, because you also do have a lot of autonomy. You craft your own you know, re research area, but the time cycles are very slow. It takes a long time to get articles out in peer review. Um, oftentimes, the focus of those articles is very abstract or conceptual, so it can take years or even decades before the research that you do trickles out into people's lives and I'm thinking, when I say in people's lives, I mean like a user at home with a product. I, I just always really got excited by the idea that I could work on something that six months or a year from now might be in somebody's hands, helping them do something differently. And that mindset doesn't work well with the academic time cycle. So that for me was what didn't work in that context. And then I, I just found with a very highly structured companies that I've worked for, it wasn't it just wasn't as fun for me it wasn't as challenging it was much closer to a nine to five like your job was very clearly written out and you could kind of execute the steps on the list and know that you'd done them well and go home and enjoy your evening and that part was great but I think I thrive on the challenge of a messy situation and trying to figure out how to make it better and that just wasn't there for me in those really structured environments gotta let your creativity flow <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah and uh Connecting to something you said before as well in terms of what you guys have learned from working with designers and so on, I guess it would be fun to jump into, I guess, a little more of the book and in general your work in terms of starting at the at the, where you started in the book as well in the process in terms of what you think about when you start a diagnosis phase in your work. Because I think it's easier said and done where there's so many ways to kind of start to understand a problem from qualitative to quantitative to like more behavior focused to maybe more attitudinal things to to look into. So I'm just curious how, how you set up that kind of process of 
trying to understand the, the problem or the context. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to actually sound a little bit different from the book because in the book, I was trying to be um, more general at times. So here's the broad spectrum of ways you could do this. But because I work in a particular context, um, often I have a specific flavor of that that shows up in my work. But one of the really important things that I do at the start of diagnosis is try to learn the problem space. And the most, for me, what I find the most valuable is the stakeholder interview. And this is like very initially. So I like to talk to multiple people at my client organization. I specifically ask them to give me a list of people who represent all different functions and teams. Their instinct sometimes is to get like their close team members to talk to you. And that's less interesting because you don't get different perspectives on the issue. And the new things that you learn kind of peter out quickly as opposed to when you talk to folks who are across the organization. And my only real caveat is they have to be stakeholders. They have to either affect something that is going to be an input to this project or their um, support is necessary on the back end for it to be successful. That's really what I think of as a stakeholder. And I'll spend 45 minutes, an hour in conversation with with these folks, really trying to understand, you know, what's the situation in your company, with your clients, with this product? What are you trying to solve? What does success look like? And in having these conversations, you start to get a picture of the problem space. And the important thing for me here is I don't necessarily take my client's assessment when they hire us at face value. Usually clients have a hypothesis about what's going on and what the solution is. And sometimes they're right, but sometimes they're not. And so these stakeholder interviews are an early opportunity for me to press on that and really see, especially from others in the same organization, is this truly the right framing of the problem? Is the solution path that you're trying to preview for us going to be the one we want to walk down? Um, And then, you know, a next really important step is doing that. And I I know the word user can be controversial, but I'm going to use it. uh, User research. So really talking to the people who will ultimately use this thing we design and understanding the problem space from their perspective. And this is where the big discovery happens because oftentimes there are contextual factors or limitations or opportunities that aren't visible to the client in their role in their organization that we're able to uncover by having these conversations with users. We do literature reviews. That's a really important one to see what type of research has been done in the past in this problem space. And here we might both look at When I say problem space, it might be something like lowering blood pressure in elderly people who don't get a lot of exercise. So something like that, where it's really, I guess, topical, but it also might be looking at the particular behavior change frameworks that we think we're going to draw from. So, you know, what types of approaches have tended to be helpful when we're looking at older age groups or when we're dealing with health conditions that have invisible symptoms? And, you know, we want to pull that evidence together and make sure that it's an input. We typically will do that before we do our user interviews, but after we do our stakeholder interviews, there's really no um, rationale for the timing of that against the stakeholder interviews, except that we try to do those really early. But with the user interviews, we want to make sure that if there are any constructs in the literature review that we want to test, that we're incorporating those into our moderator guide somehow. Um, and typically those, those are kind of the big three activities that I'll do in discovery. And then there's a synthesis portion at the end where we'll, we'll sit down and we sort through the data and we try to come up with the major patterns. We use Combi a lot. So one of the things we might do is, you know, organize the major barriers that we've heard. And it's, um, kind of reminds me when I was doing my dissertation, it's the method of constant comparison when you have qualitative data and you're basically putting things into piles and you're trying to consolidate those piles as much as possible. So, okay, are these things really the same thing or are they not? Like, where are their distinct differences? We almost do that, where it's like, what is the smallest set of barriers where they are all still distinct from each other? 
yeah, that's that's basically the major way that I approach the discovery phase. Yeah, it sounds like color coding and <laughs> moving it's things funny, around. <laughs> so I know the podcast won't have visuals, but I'm actually sitting here. These are like sheets of paper where I was marking data from a study I'm doing now. And I had them all over my floor right before Thanksgiving with post-its <laughs> on them. I really miss the whiteboards in the office. I really, really miss them. There's something about behavioral scientists and post-its that are just like a match made in heaven. <laughs> They're on every wall of everywhere. So true. <laughs> There we go. Cool. I want to sort of talk through a a really concrete example of designing for behavior change. So once you've really understood the problem space and then you're you're going to create that intervention, let's just say it's a a mobile app because that's you know a, a space that we're all very familiar with. And let's take weight loss as an example. I think it's a good time of year to talk about weight loss. It's not as good as January, but <laughs> but um, but it, you know everyone's overeating right now shamelessly. And uh, you know just just imagining um, you can pick your persona or whatever. The the very straightforward behaviors, of course, are you know eating less or eating healthier and exercising. Probably the former more than the than the latter, but um, what would this uh, this you know sort of quote unquote perfect weight loss app do? What would it uh, wh- what would the experience be like for the user? And can you just sort of walk us through those key elements of w- what this intervention really has to have? Yeah, um, it, you know, weight loss is a good one too because it has this um, characteristic of requiring a lot of behavior change, but then being slow to show the main result. So you don't lose weight very quickly. And that can be very frustrating for people who feel like they're doing everything right. You know, I'm eating so much less, I'm moving so much more, and I've only lost a pound or I've not lost any weight, or in some cases I've gained weight, right? Because the changes to your diet or or you're building muscle mass and that causes your weight to temporarily go up. So um, it's a really challenging space. One thing that I think is really important across the board, if you can do it, but I think in weight loss especially, is to make sure that this app has the capability for some personalization. People have different reasons why they want to lose weight. And I think keeping a focus on that is really important. Someone who wants to fit into a wedding dress in 12 months is going to think about weight loss differently than somebody who um, knows that they're at high risk for developing type 2 diabetes and is really afraid of ending up like their grandparents who they saw suffer from those symptoms. And I think the experience needs to reflect the differences for both of those people. You can probably do something that's much more lighthearted and gamified for your your bride-to-be than for your person who's really looking for that sustained lifelong change so that they can live healthier. Um, And I've done a lot of work in my career with technology that can personalize in a scalable way. So it's just an area I feel really passionately about. And I think it helps support a lot of the pillars of motivation. So that's the first thing I'd look for is how how do we um, collect data about our users so that we can understand what they're trying to achieve with this weight loss? Um, Well, and that's really interesting in itself, too, because I think there's this tension between collecting enough, but not too much data so that you're not overwhelming them with the questions. You know, you have the the survey of 500 things to learn about them. And, you know, two hours later, they're like, I don't even remember what I was here for in the first place. But yeah, so how, I guess, yeah, I'm curious what you think. Are there particular psychographics or dimensions that are, are really get the most bang for your personalization buck or that you would say, like, don't even bother asking people about X, Y, Z, but really try to narrow in on these things? 
Yeah, I'll tell you one thing we did when I was with um, Health Media, the company I worked for that Johnson & Johnson acquired that was really interesting so that we had a personalization technology and we ran a study where we just asked people, would you rather the tone of the coaching you receive be like a cheerleader, a drill sergeant, or just the facts? And it was a totally even split across the three. Like, I was not expecting it to interesting. Be so even. And we had no, when we looked at the other data that we had, there was no real way to predict who was who. But that said, I actually think that sort of thing would be an interesting thing to ask because one of the things that we had found just through the feedback we collected ongoing from our users was that the tone mismatch really, like if you didn't like the tone of the app, you were out. And people do sometimes have very strong reactions to like the, you got it, keep going Mm -hmm. versus (laughs) like, okay, you done messed up. Like let's... (laughs) Uh, so, so that's the sort of thing that I might ask because, and there's also no really great way to gather that data elsewhere. Because that's the other thing to your point. Sometimes there's ways that you can collect data about a person without directly asking them. Of course, like with their, I mean, you don't want to get into the creepier data privacy sorts of issues there. But you know, there we used to ask people for permission to connect to their medical records, and then we could get a lot of their like baseline biometric data from that. So that kind of thing, where you're doing it with the user permission, you can take a lot of the question load off. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's a big one. And then another one that I am, this this kind of goes against how I am in other parts of my work, but I am actually a believer in collecting demographic data for personalization. And that's because there is a lot of research. A lot of it's done by Vic Strecker, who founded Health Media and who I interviewed in the book, but shows that if you can personalize the content that you show people, like things like images along demographic criteria, they pay more attention to the content. It registers neurologically as self-relevant. And so they're more likely to read it, pay attention to it, remember it, take action on it. And to me, that feels so, you know, it's like if we can do that kind of relatively simple thing and get people to pay more attention to this this content, that let's do it. All right. So One thing that I'm I, really, okay, should I go or you go? <laughs> well, I wasn't going to ask a new question. I was only going to get us back to part two of the, the perfect weight loss app because I, oh, I yeah. interrupted the... <laughs> Personalization was one. (laughs) So the other thing that I think is super important with weight loss um, in particular and other similar kinds of endeavors where I mentioned like you're making all these immediate changes, but the payoff is far in the future is making sure that you're providing feedback at multiple levels. So you want to let people know how their immediate actions are tracking against plan. You know, yes, you made good choices or here's how you could fix this choice in the future. But because they're not going to see results for a while, it's really important to reflect to them that they are making progress in the in the macro. And so I think showing both of those things simultaneously to people is super important in this case. Um, And, you know, then on the flip side, and I use this example in the book, too, I've seen this, I've experienced this as a person. People who are trying to lose weight, they um, will plateau or something, you know, they'll go on vacation, Thanksgiving will happen, they'll put some weight back on, and that can be super discouraging and people may quit. If you've been showing them this long-term feedback, you have the opportunity to say like, okay, yeah, you had a terrible week and that wasn't great, but look, like you've come this far. Like no, no reason to slide all the way back. So it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a way that I think that you can put their immediate actions in a more, um, I want to say motivational as like a human, but as a behavior scientist, that's not the word to use here, but um, like a more positive perspective. Yeah, I love your your rock band example that you give in the book and the, the levels of immediate, like you just did this now, giving that sort of feedback, but also pairing it with the cumulative over time. And then the normative aspect as well, I think is really interesting and important that that translates very well to health technologies. 
Yeah, we struggled with, uh, or, you know, I've struggled in the past with using normative feedback too, because a lot, there are a lot of bad, bad habits that are very typical. And you don't want to say to somebody like, oh yeah, you know, 85% of people do this bad thing we're trying to get you to stop doing. So one of the things that we had made a decision to do on some of our products was to only give normative feedback on like non, the things that didn't have a value attached to them. So we might say, wow, you know, 35% of our people are also excited about being grandparents, but we wouldn't talk about the actual health behaviors because that's where you start to get into like almost normalizing the bad behavior. And the rising norm, I think, is another popular one where you can say, well, nobody's exercising now, but everyone's (laughs) thinking about starting. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So Um, many people are interested in. Really curious to hear your thoughts on some of the weight loss where, you know, in many ways, what you usually try to do is to give people quick wins with mm-hmm. different types of settings. But it's this kind of like tricky line where people come in with a lot of expectations to also like lose weight quickly because that's sadly, you know, it's all about quick crash weight cuts usually that's been advertised. And how do you think about like expectation setting? Yeah, expectation setting is really important. And that includes giving people the bad news that their dreams of quick weight loss are not going to come true for them. So if you can set expectations accurately, then that gives people the opportunity to opt in or out with, it's similar to informed consent in a a research study, but, you know, for products, I think you want people to know what they're getting into so that as they experience it, they're measuring their experience against those expectations that are now accurate. Um, One of the things that I've done some work in, and this was again with Johnson & Johnson, it was really interesting because J&J, you know, it's a huge company and it owns a large portfolio of brands. And this was a study we did that crossed brands. So it came out of my group that was looking at health and wellness, but we had Listerine as a partner for it. And we tested all these different things that people could do to improve their feelings of energy during the workday, including swishing Listerine in your mouth but also including bursts <laughs> of physical activity. And we found that actually, so Listerine wakes you up, it burns. <laughs> it doesn't feel great. <laughs> so if you're, if you're ever falling asleep in the middle of a workday and you'd like to be a little bit more alert, have some Listerine, or you can go for a five minute walk or you know go up and down the stairs in your building if you have access to that. The reason we did this study was we wanted to give people this sense of quick wins. And so what we ended up building into any of our programs that had a weight management capacity is actually asking people to track their feelings of energy at a specific time of day as soon as they started the program. Because if they were following the recommendations around physical activity, they should see improvements in that energy level pretty quickly. I mean, even same day. So that was a way that we were able to reflect quick wins to people without necessarily getting into any sort of dangerous weight loss or um, you know, any any medical issues there. But yeah, similarly, like finding an exercise you like, that's an important thing too. If people don't enjoy something, it's really hard for them to stick with it. So encouraging a mindset of experimentation, giving quick check checkboxes. Um, the Fabulous app is really good at this where the first day it asks you to like drink some water and <laughs> it's very hard to fail. So yeah. <laughs> you start with a feeling of success and that kind of thing is really important. Even if the success metric isn't all that important in the long run. So if you can give people this sense of, I accomplished the first set of things that are necessary for this bigger task, then they will feel better about it. Yeah. It's more about doing the thing and succeeding Mm -hmm. at it. It's not so important what the thing actually is. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. You you can probably see, I have a, I just got a Peloton a few months ago because of pandemic. 
And I'm <laughs> blown away by how well they do this sort of thing, like the whole self-efficacy building. Like there's so many different types of feedback and it's very easy to kind of program it so that you're getting the right types for your personality and the, the things that you know you enjoy. And they do a lot of, oh, you just did your first workout. Here's a badge. You just did your first stretch. Here's another badge. And oh, <laughs> you did the same workout as 45 other people. Yay. So I, there's just a lot of different ways to get this feeling of accomplishment without necessarily seeing any movement in the number on the scale. Amy, I see you. Isn't that the, the thing they do as well? They do. Well, it's so popular now that it doesn't happen a lot. And you have to go to a live class, which I don't typically do. Right. I, I don't run on anybody else's time schedule. <laughs> Those midnight workouts just don't work for anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, a lot of the live ones are in the middle of the night because they have a studio in London. <laughs> oh, so funny. <laughs> but yeah, they do. If you attend a live class... Um, the instructor will actually be like, oh, Amy, I see you on the leaderboard. Yay, it's your 100th ride. But there's just like the live classes, literally the turkey trot or turkey burn the other day had 50,000 people live. Wow. Whoa. So your, your odds of getting called out are diminishing. Eileen, <laughs> <laughs> do you have another question on feedback, right? Because it would be fun to explore feedback a little bit more. We can explore feedback. Yeah, well, so we're back. We'd be backtracking a little bit, and I guess that's fine. But I was interested in in those multiple levels and how they sort of interact with each other, and um, even a more general take on what makes good feedback, what makes bad feedback. Just to sort of double tap on the the feedback note. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is so cliche because it's like psych one hundred and one, but I do think the smart feedback uh, mentality is important to keep in mind because if you give people feedback that isn't actionable at all, so what? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> unless it's just a pat on the back, I think that's okay. And I, I do think in general, positive feedback tends to be underrated. I did some work recently about wellness apps, and I ran a few participatory design groups, which, you know, asterisk, that's a, a design technique that I've learned in the last few years working at MadPow that is incredible for uncovering people's latent needs and really getting them to talk about their feelings without talking about their feelings. And one of the things that I heard in doing those groups loud and clear was, you know, we're, we're doing these wellness apps and we only learn about what we do wrong. So even if we do get the thumbs up and we hit our step goal or we come in under our calorie count, that's a one time a day thing. But to get there requires tons of little successes across the day, and those little successes go unrecognized. So I think positive feedback is something that we can use a lot more of. People, you know, they can ignore it if it doesn't work for them, but there's a lot of people who are looking for more of that. And I was going to say something else that has just flown out of my head. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, it, it has to do with leveling feedback. And the Peloton is actually a great example of this, which I wasn't familiar with when I wrote the book, really. But when you're giving people normative feedback against a really large group, chances are they are not going to be at the top. And it can be really hard for people to get feedback that says like, you're 40,000 out of 50,000 people. Like that doesn't feel like a success. And I think it's important to be able to filter through the normative feedback, the comparative feedback. That's actually not normative feedback. It's group, it's group feedback. But to filter through in a way where you're showing people um, against similar others or against a subset of the overall population so that they don't feel overwhelmed by how far they are from the top or how close they are to the bottom. Um, and I've seen this in other examples as well, like step competitions. Um, I've worked for a couple of companies where they've had the employees do step competitions where you measure your steps per day on a pedometer and, you know, enter it into a website. And then you see how your team compares to other teams. And um, I, actually it was CVS actually gave the winning team like a trip on a cruise or something. It was a big ticket prize. <laughs> we try to avoid cruises these days. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it actually really weird too, for an exercise thing, like you can't get as much exercise on a cruise ship. Not much you can do. <laughs> yeah. But on this website and the teams that were in the lead were like, they must only be walking. Like that has to be their full-time job now. And it was really hard <laughs> to look at that and just be like, why, why am I bothering? Right. So um, I do think it's really important to be able to filter through feedback in a way where you can show people something that's a little bit more meaningful than just you against the macro group. That's very cool. I guess before we nerd out a little bit too much about feedback, we're going to segue into a little bit different type of uh, round of questions, which is overrated versus underrated uh, okay. segment. And so the basic idea is this is kind of a quick fire round. And so uh, we'll list a couple of things, uh, take turns, me and Aline, and you will just have to say if you think it's overrated, underrated, or correctly rated okay. um, by society or the field. So we encourage controversy here. So if you say too many correctly rated, we might give you a little bit of nudge to be contrarian, but I don't think okay. it's going to be a problem. Are you ready? Right. I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. First one is a tough one. Baking, overrated or underrated? Bacon, underrated. Wait, no, baking. <laughs> oh, baking. <laughs> also underrated. All, yeah. <laughs> same answer. Yeah, awesome. no, same answer. I love to bake. It's one of my major hobbies. And I think uh, it is incredibly relaxing. It's creative and it yields something delicious. Combi. I think it's still underrated, actually. I will say it's underrated globally. I think sometimes it gets overrated. Like when I use it with a client and they're like, oh, this is going to solve everything. Like, okay, it's it's still just a tool. Yeah, <laughs> this is how we organize our thoughts. Yeah, but I, I think it's still not as familiar to people as it will and should be. And one reason maybe as well why it's underrated is that I still hear people say the calm, calm, like model, like a calm. Yeah. And, and so I think that's that's another evidence that maybe people should uh, learn a bit more about it. Okay, Boston, overrated or underrated? Underrated. What is one underrated part of Boston, living in Boston? I think it gets underrated for, um, like, it's very clean and very manageable. So I, I'm originally from Boston. I'm 100% biased here. And, you know, I, I moved away for a while and then came back as soon as I could. So I, I do love <laughs> it. And I have my my native roots. But like, I'll go to New York and I love New York, but it's just so big and there's so much going on. And I come home to Boston and I immediately notice how clean it is. And it just feels much more manageable. Like I can get a lot of the same big city things as New York, not to the same extent or, you know, the same variety, but, you know, I can go to the theater, I can see a concert, I can go walk on the the, the ocean, I, we have water, um, and I don't feel like I'm going to have a panic attack doing it. <laughs> yeah, New York is definitely overrated. <laughs> you didn't say it, but it was there and it's true. <laughs> I, I would love to go there though. Like it's been so long. Like right yeah. now I'll travel anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would go anywhere right now. <laughs> uh, all right. Meditation. I'm going to say overrated. Why? I have aspired to meditate for years and I've recently made some headway with it. And I just, I think you can get the benefits of meditation without calling it meditation and packaging it up the way that it is. And I think a lot of what people talk about getting out of meditation, I'm able to get out of other exercise. So one of the reasons I really like to run is it gets my mind into this state where I'm not, I'm just thinking differently. Like information is almost flowing over my brain instead of me grabbing onto it and wrestling with it. I think that that's what meditation is trying to get to. And I, it's like, it's almost like becomes more of a stressor to me because I struggle with the whole like sitting, sitting still and being in the moment aspect of it where I could probably get a lot of the same benefit by being active. I don't know. That's, that's yeah. kind of where I am with it. 
Cool. Gamification, overrated or underrated? Very overrated. Yeah, that's an easy one. And uh, I'll why it's because people who, not gamification experts, but like people who I might encounter in a client situation who understand a little bit about gamification, very rarely understand it well enough to understand why it works when it's done well. And the reason it can work well is it taps into motivational dynamics, right? You build the game, you choose the game mechanics in a way that supports people's motivation. There's a lot of people who think that gamification is you just add the game mechanics and the game mechanics by themselves are engaging regardless of whether they connect to some larger concept or framework. And that is a huge mistake. It's really, really frustrating to work with people who have that mental model, um, where they're just like, I don't understand why you're just not doing a leaderboard. Just do a leaderboard. You need a leaderboard. <laughs> I've, I've written proposals for projects where the request for proposal actually includes things like the winning solution will include a leaderboard. And it's like, well, why? Like this, that makes no sense. And in fact, it's probably harmful in this case because this is a really personal topic or, you know, this just isn't something that lends itself to competition. So yeah, I think gamification is, is overrated. All right. This is a good one. Pumpkin spice lattes. Overrated. <laughs> I thought you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm I'm like a regular coffee with a little bit of cream girl. So yeah, if I'm going to have a dessert, I'm going to have a dessert. Nice. How about writing a book? Overrated or unrated? I really want to say both on that. I feel like that's <laughs> cheating. And my You're allowed one. <laughs> in my experience is weird though, right? Because my book came out on March 3rd, right before the pandemic. So I think I would say underrated if the pandemic hadn't happened, but it was like, I had all these cool events and things planned. I was going to go talk with, you know, a group in New York city and like, just, I had, we were going to do a reception at MadPow that I was really excited about. We had chosen a cocktail to serve. None of those things happened. And I feel like my experience of having the book out in the world has been really different from what I had expected and hoped. But the part that is underrated that I love is people will ask me questions now. I'm like, well, you could just read my book. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just refer you to my, <laughs> my yeah, like, source. <laughs> I could check all this out again, or you could read the book. <laughs> and buy it while you're at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually it's really great as well for things like, um, you know, MadPow puts on a couple of events, webinars, conferences, and things over the course of the year. And inv inevitably, someone's like, hey, Amy, why don't you do this? And it's now I have a lot of source material that I can pull from and put together a presentation more quickly. So it's like I've gathered a lot of those resources in a, a one place where otherwise they, they would have existed. They just would have been everywhere. All right. Last one. And this this one, I feel I know the answer to as well, because I <laughs> heard from your little friend in the back earlier. <laughs> Cats. Um, <laughs> I think they're underrated. I love cats. I say this though. I, um, I really want to murder one of mine right now. <laughs> so I have a cat Rex. He's 16 years old. And when Rex was young, we tried several years in a row to have a Christmas tree. So the first year we had a live tree and he kept eating the branches. And then the, the last row, we got rid of it early because I looked under the tree and there was a tree branch like five or six inches long that he had clearly eaten and regurgitated whole. It was like just so gross. And I can't believe that he managed it physically. We've tried fake trees. We've tried tabletop trees. No matter what kind of tree we get, he eats it. So now he's 16. It's been many years. And I bought this like, it's not even really a tree. It's like a tinsel light up tree type thing. Put it up yesterday and who runs right over and starts grazing on it? So I'm kind of mad about that. <laughs> but that said, they're, 
They're great companions. And my first, I grew up with cats, but my first cat and as an adult, Pete, I adopted him when I was in grad school, when I was working on my master's thesis, right before I broke up with a boyfriend who I live with. And that summer, it was just me and Pete in my apartment. It was the summer of 03 when there was also that big blackout all over the Northeast. And we lost power in Michigan too for like two or three days. But I remember sitting in the kitchen of my apartment, writing my master's thesis, like mourning this breakup. And I had this kitten. He um, curled around the back of my laptop while I wrote. And when the blackout happened, like he was my buddy, we went and sat in the car in the air conditioner together. It really made a difference to my mental health to have a companion during those grad school years, which were really hard and lonely and had a lot of just points of stress, you know, writing your thesis proposal, defending that, collecting the data, writing the dissertation, all those things were really hard and stressful and solitary. But I had a companion animal who helped me through it and was sort of, you know, just a quiet friend. And I didn't have to worry about going home six times during the day to walk him and make sure he could get outside. So just from kind of a practical perspective, I do like dogs as well, but cats fit my lifestyle a little better. So I think they're underrated. They're underrated for what good friends they can be and how good they can be for your mental health. Mm. Cats rule, dogs rule. (laughs) Well, I have a fun fact as well on that in terms of, I have a nephew named Rex and he's also 16 years old. So, uh, Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I um, had a coworker named Rex when I was at Health Media and every time I would post on Facebook about my Rex, people would be like, what? (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. I have my own Rex story. Do you want it? (laughs) Yes, please. I've uh, I've been calling the... um, small child in my belly, uh, the dino for the last six months. And, uh, and so <laughs> we've been making a lot of T-Rex jokes and we're actually considering, uh, making his middle name Rex. <laughs> oh, yay. Uh, that's, that's awesome. I really enjoyed uh, hearing that. And, uh, to finish things off, I, I think it's always interesting to dig into the fact that being a behavioral scientist is very hard to kind of leave you had at the office, so to say, and pretend that you're not going to take it with you at home. And I feel like it's one of those things where you're definitely going to bring it home in, in many different ways. So I'm just curious, how do you apply behavioral science in your own life? And maybe as an extension, how, how do you kind of plan and treat for future self Amy to be, you know, <laughs> having a good, good set of circumstances to, to navigate? I'm a big believer in shaping my own environment to make future behavior easier. And that's, that's a big way that I do it. So I'm not going to turn the computer because I'll probably like unplug everything, but I've actually set up all my workout <laughs> stuff so that it's out. Like I, I have hand weights and things. I didn't have this before pandemic. And I was really bad about going to the gym and lifting weights and doing strength training, which I need to do because I have a family history of osteoporosis. Uh, but when all this started, I not only bought the weights, but I decided even though aesthetically it's not my favorite, I'm going to keep them visible and out. And they're actually right next to my workspace. So I've found now that during the workday, if I have a half hour, 45 minutes between meetings, I can throw on a 10 minute workout video and quickly get a little bit done. So doing the preparation to make that easy and visible is really important to making sure I follow through on the behavior. And even similarly with things like, I think it it almost feels like a, a very mild form of OCD sometimes, but I'm really obsessed with making sure that I have all the basic cooking stuff in the house. Like if we couldn't get groceries for a week or two, I would make sure that we had decent meals on the table. So we have, you know, olive oil and canned goods and seasonings and grains. And part of that is so that if we get into a situation where, you know, something happens with, you know, whatever, I forget to grocery shop, like we'll still eat a decent dinner. And maybe that's not as as necessary because we could always get 
DoorDash, but just that sort of preparation thing is one of the things that I've learned in creating programs for other people is really important to success. And I've been trying to adopt it more into mine. So and the two things that really boils down to for me are making sure that I have specific supplies on hands and then that I keep things in a place where I'll actually see and use them instead of putting them away into storage. Like I've, I've just learned that if I have to go through a lot of steps to get something out, I won't do it. That's awesome. Yeah. I guess we have to somewhat wrap it up, but uh, it was so much fun. To, to chat about everything from, from cats to behavioral science and I guess everything in between. So, uh, so yeah, I guess big thanks for, for taking the time and for this conversation and even a bigger thanks for your contributions to the field as a whole. I feel like with Engage, it's one of those books that feels a very important void and I'm very happy to have <laughs> another book that I can like very easily recommend to people that are curious about how to you know, put behavioral science to practice. So, uh, so yeah, thank you yeah. so much, Amy. Thanks for having me. I hope I wasn't boring. I, I got a little nervous when I saw you promised it wouldn't be boring. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Better bring the funny. I feel, I feel like we definitely Thank did. You. I feel like we definitely did. <laughs> <laughs>